Hi everyone, I'm Liam and this is Words with Wine. Welcome to another episode with our special guest, Fotini Iconomopoulos. Nicknamed the negotiator as a child, Fotini has been honing her skills her entire life. For the last decade, she's been empowering Fortune 500 executives and their teams to achieve their objective through her expertise in negotiation, communication, and persuasion. She guides companies through high-stakes scenarios and through tailored intensive negotiation workshops for clients across all industries to develop their teams. Fotini has been recognized with the Network of Executive Women's Inclusion Award, as well as the Greek America Foundation's Top 40 Under 40 Award for her achievements and philanthropic work. In today's episode, Fotini will share with us her knowledge and expertise in salary negotiation and communication. So join us for words of advice, words of wisdom on your biology podcast, Words with Women. Welcome to Words with Women. For today's episode, our guest is Futini. So welcome, Futini. We're very happy to have you with us. I'm very excited to be here. Happy to have a chat. And Lauren is joining us again. Hi, Lauren. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back on the podcast. Yes. So I think to start the conversation, I would like to ask you, how did you become a negotiation expert? What is the story behind it? I tell everybody it was accidental. There's a, it's a <laughs> bit of a debate whether I was born into it or whether I, I stumbled into it. Um, so if you creep me on any of my social media, my, my bio is pretty clear that I was nicknamed the negotiator when I was a kid by my dad. And that was because I grew up in a very strict Greek household where I had to negotiate mm-hmm. to get my way out of there in the first place. And I was surrounded by people who were negotiating in, in the Greek culture. That's kind of a normal thing to do. And when I left and I went away to school, I did my MBA in organization behavior. And then I was recruited into L'Oreal, where I was negotiating with large companies like Walmart on a regular basis. And so that just became part of my daily routine. And I went to another company, did the same. And then I was recruited into this consulting firm because I went through this company was hired to train us as salespeople to be better negotiators. And at the end of this four-day workshop that I went through, they said, you should really be doing what we do. And I was like, yeah, sure, maybe someday when I have more experience, because I was still in my 20s at the time. And they said, no, seriously, you should be doing what we do. And I was like, mm, okay. And a year later, I joined the company. And, and since then, I've been crisscrossing the globe and training people from all levels in the organization, from the CEO down to junior account managers. I've been consulting on um, real life negotiations. So when Fortune 500 companies are struggling to strike a deal or they don't know what to do in some high stakes negotiations, they call me and I coach them through how to do it. And uh, for the last few years, I've also been teaching at the Schulich School of Business part-time. I teach MBA negotiations there. I also do a lot of keynote speaking. So I love getting in front of a massive audience and helping as many people as I can. And that all came from, you know, a natural affinity for it, a passion for it, and an interest in the subject. So the entire time I was in school and working and so on, I've always been reading about how to get what you want and how to be more (laughs) effective and credible and all of those things. And that just kind of all snowballed into a career and a book that's even launching in uh, spring in April 2021. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to the book for sure. I was doing some research yesterday for it, so I'm excited for that. I know that you work a lot with women groups and you did a session with us that everyone loved and we had great feedback for. So I know that also we hear a lot that women ask for raises as often as men, but are less likely to get them. What do you think is the reason behind it? 
Previous research absolutely told us that women didn't ask as much. And I would say that that's starting to change now. I, I don't have the most recent studies, but the more I hear about it, the more I am hearing that women are stepping up. And I and I applaud the next generation of women for, for doing that. But there's still something holding them back. And the reason is we are not treated the same. So even though more and more women are stepping up, they're still not getting the same results as their male peers. And the reason behind that is pure and simple. It's discrimination. We're just not ready as a society for people to see women as those credible authority figures, those people who deserve all of these things. We're not ready to see women in a role where they are asking for what they want. It's the reason why the glass ceiling still exists. It's the reason why we still don't see parity in boardrooms and in other senior positions. And so I think we're slowly catching up. But the reason that women are still behind is a combination of, okay, well, there's some fear of repercussion. What if they think I'm greedy? What if they rescind the offer? What if I screw it up? What if I look stupid? But there's also the legitimate reason of they're going to be discriminating against me. It's going to be more difficult for me. So is it worth it? And mm -hmm. I tell every single woman that I talk to, absolutely, it's worth it. And there are things that you can do that will mitigate some of that risk, that will make it less scary and less likely that you'll end up in that position that you're fearful of. That is absolutely true. I know for myself, as I told you before, when I wanted to negotiate for my first job, I was dealing with these questions. What would they think of me? How would I be perceived? Would they rescind the offer? And I think a lot of young professionals or um, out of undergrad students, they deal with this a lot, which is one of the main reasons I'm a really big fan of your work. And I think it brings up a lot of value. Yeah. And I, I, I find the pattern anecdotally, I would say that when I teach my MBA students, anytime someone comes to see me during my office hours, it's never about the course. <laughs> it's never anything <laughs> to do with the curriculum. It, it's always to do with a, an upcoming job offer. And it's never yeah. men coming to see me. It is all, 99 times out of really? 100. It is women coming to see me, wow. even when they have the courage, because like I said, more and more of you have yeah. the courage to step up and do it. It's great. There's still this, oh my God, what do I do? How do I say it? How do I make yeah. sure? And whereas the men in my, yeah, the men in my classes and the men that I encounter in my general audiences, they don't think twice about, I'm going to sound stupid. I mean, it's expected of me. And therefore, why wouldn't I is the attitude that I see from, from that group versus the women who come to see me mm -hmm. and go, I need to make sure that I'm not going to be treated differently or that I'm not going to look stupid when I get in that room. So there's a lot more uh, thought that has to go into mm -hmm. it for women than for men. I know recently that I had to negotiate like contract extension. Like I just wanted to work mm -hmm. for um, another term with the company that I'm working for. And my worry was that I would come off as like bossy. Like it's not, I wasn't scared of looking stupid. I just want to seem like I was demanding something from my boss. So I'm not sure. If that's also something people deal with, do you think? Totally. I mean, that is the, that's the, the common stereotype that we're, we're worried about, right? I don't want to be perceived as greedy, as bossy, as aggressive, mm -hmm. as bitchy, as all of those awful labels that are associated to us when the equivalent mm -hmm. labels on the male side is confidence, it's credible, yeah. it's authoritative, it's all of those things. We, we assign a different connotation depending on the group that is, is going forward. And it's a legitimate fear because we have some work to do still as a society for that level of discrimination. Mm -hmm. But what I tell women is, you know, there are things that you can tweak that will make sure that you are not labeled bitchy. And I've, I've done this by, I've known this from reading and researching, but I also know it from personal experimentation as well. I used to get that word a lot. And fortunately, yeah. um, I don't get it anymore. And I, I would attribute that a little bit to my age and credibility now, <laughs> even though I don't like to admit that. And a little bit and a lot to 
the, the behaviors and the mannerisms that I've learned and that I've been mm-hmm. putting into practice. Do you think um, likability is a factor in whether the negotiation process will be successful or not? Always. I hate okay. to admit it. I absolutely hate to admit it, but I, I firmly believe and from everything that I've read about persuasion science, likability is a factor. Now, how much likability, there's a degree to it. You don't have to be likable enough that they want to go on vacation with you and, you know, hang out with you every weekend and raise your kids together and that kind of stuff. That's not <laughs> what we're talking about. The the likability is I need to like you just enough that I want to deal with you. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. absolutely more important for women than it is for men. We can overlook some stuff with men, but women have to have that likability factor a little bit more. We'll, for, we'll, we'll forgive men. We'll give them a longer tightrope. You know, all of those, those things that every analogy I can think of, we will be more forgiving of men than we will of women. And when it comes to likability, it doesn't necessarily come from where everybody think it does, thinks it does. There's a, a researcher named Dr. Robert Cialdini, and he wrote kind of like the Bible on all things persuasion. He wrote a book called Influence back in the 1980s, and he wrote a follow-up to it recently called Persuasion. And in it, he talks about the principle of likability. What I see in negotiation is too many people think, oh, I want them to like me, so I'll just give them what they want, or I'll back off of my demands and so on. That's not where likability comes from. That's Mm -hmm. just poor expectation management. Because if you keep backing up, if you keep being accommodating, you're now managing an expectation that you're always going to be that way. So when you do come out and ask for something more, they're going to be like, oh, where did this come from? I thought this person was so accommodating, and now it's a shock to my system. Likability actually comes from similarities. We like people who are similar to us. We like people who have something in common with us. And it could be something very simple. It could be, oh, you went to that school. I went to that school. Oh, you wear glasses. I wear glasses. Oh, you have curly hair. I have curly hair. And it could be something that simple to start building a little bond, right? We're building bridges with people. We're building connections with them. Likeability also comes from paying people genuine compliments. And I say genuine because we can smell a rat. We can sense (laughs) when somebody is just trying to butter us up and being manipulated to get something out of us. And we also like people who are cooperative. So those are the three places where likability comes from. And the techniques that I keep trying to teach women are techniques that give us that sense of cooperative, a cooperative nature, right? It, changing little tiny things about your language, changing little tiny things about your tone will make them go, okay, I want to work with her versus that bitch is being so demanding. You know, there's a difference between those two things. And it's teeny tiny little things that we do behaviorally that can make that difference there. And I'd say generally speaking, most women I know, you know, most women I encounter in in the business world, especially, but, you know, most of the women who come into my audiences, they're very cooperative people. They're solution oriented people. They're problem solving people. They're not the ones who are banging their fists on the table and going, you must give me this or else I'm going to leave. And so most women already have that cooperative thing down. And I think we overcompensate for that at times by giving up our demands or backing off of what we're asking for. And we don't have to do that. Like ability comes from other places. And and we have to remember that when we go through negotiations. Yeah, absolutely. One of the questions that came up to us within our team and everything is when is a good time to negotiate? Because we know right now is COVID-19, a lot of things has changed. And if you approach a company, they might say we're in a tight position, things are happening in a different way. So what would you say to people thinking to negotiate in COVID-19 times right now? I would say generally speaking, there's never a good time or a bad time to negotiate. 
So there are some companies who are thriving in COVID-19, who are doing extremely well, and there are others who are not doing so well. So you've got to look at it at a case-by-case basis as opposed to, okay, it's COVID-19, people are stressed, I'm not going to negotiate. There are always times where people are stressed. And so you've got to look at the context in which we're playing. I had a, a former student reach out to me this summer and her consulting firm, a large company, uh, had done layoffs because of COVID-19 and they had cut salaries because of COVID-19. But summertime was also the time where they did annual evaluations and promotions and, and raises and all that kind of stuff. And she said, I know that I deserve a raise this year because even though the company's not doing well, it's my department that is carrying the whole damn company. We are over exceeding all of these things and carrying everybody else. So why shouldn't I get rewarded? And I said, absolutely, why shouldn't you get rewarded? So you've got to look at it within the context. She did negotiate and she managed to increase her offer significantly. And they even said to her, you know what? We would like to do it even more due to the circumstances. You know, we can't go as far as we normally would, but here's what we're going to do next year. Or here's when we're going to review this. And so if you find yourself at a moment at a crux where it isn't a good time because you know, you know, there's been layoffs, you know, people are struggling at the moment and so on. The bills aren't getting paid and we're getting government assistance, for example. You know, maybe that's not the best time to get your reward and get what you're after. However, you can still tee up your next negotiation even now. You can plant the seeds for a better time. So even if they had told my student, you know, we can't do that for you right now, I would, I would be following up with questions to go, okay, I understand. I acknowledge this is a difficult time. When won't it be a difficult time? What do we need to see as progress? What milestones do we have to hit in order for us to move forward on rewarding me for what this is, what my contribution mm -hmm. is or whatever that looks like? You need to make sure you get very specific information about when that good time will be. I wouldn't shy away from asking for stuff now. I wouldn't shy away from starting the conversation. Mm -hmm. If you know times are tough, maybe you won't finish it today, but you will mm -hmm. start to raise it and go, hey, I understand we're in tough times. Uh, ordinarily, I would be asking for a raise. Ordinarily, I would be asking for more money, more rewards, more whatever it is that we're looking for. If this is a difficult time to do that, I would appreciate you letting me know when is a better time for that kind of thing. And if they're constantly pushing you off, if they're not giving you very specific information about when that time might come, then that's an indicator of they're using this as an excuse or that time will never come. And mm -hmm. so some companies, the not the so the not so great cultures won't be very transparent about it. They're not going to be very forthcoming about it. And that's just, that's a red flag for you to go, maybe this isn't the right place for me right now as well. Mm -hmm. But you should always be thinking, if not now, how do I set up the time for later? How do I set up that right time for this? But I've had lots of folks um, negotiating very successfully during COVID, even folks who are negotiating their first job offers. At this time, if, if a company is hiring, it's because they have budgeted for that. It's because they need somebody. So they're not going to be holding back from offers. So why wouldn't you? Even in those companies that are struggling, they're actually hiring at a great rate because they're going, we don't want to lose those fantastic candidates somewhere else because we know that there's there's going to be a need for this skill set. Yeah. So I know a lot of people are worried about time, especially with COVID. But another thing that people are worried about a little bit is like keeping calm and composure when they're asking for negotiation. So how can we keep calm and composed during the negotiation process? And how can we battle the fear of negotiation that can stop us from taking the action? 
Yeah, that's such an important question because I tell people, you know, when you're faced with a, a threat of some kind, we go back to our cave woman or caveman days. <laughs> and when you were faced with a physical threat back then, you might have been fighting like a saber toothed tiger. And what happens when you are faced with that kind of threat is your brain basically goes into overdrive and all the rational thought leaves your brain and all that energy goes to your limbs. And that's what gives you the opportunity to run like hell to get away from that threat. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we are very much wired the same way but we're not faced with those physical threats. We're faced with intellectual threats. And those stressful moments like negotiation, those moments that make you uncomfortable will trigger that same response. That's why your heart starts to race a little bit faster. That's why your breathing starts to get a little bit more rapid. That's why your hands might start to get a little bit more sweaty. Yeah. And as a result of that, all of that energy leaves your brain and you have those moments that go, oh God, why did I do that? Or this is what I should have said. Why didn't I think of that on the spot? And what I tell people comes from some research around stress. And so Kelly McGonigal did a fantastic TED talk on the topic of stress. And she also wrote a really great book called The Upside of Stress. And what she talks about is the research that she talks about there is it's how, how do I reframe? You know, I call it a pause moment. I talk about finding your mental pause button to reflect on something and go, oh, I prepared for this moment, right? I've done, I've done all my homework on this. I rehearsed this. I talked about this with somebody. Oh, this is exactly what I was expecting them to say. This is exactly how I was expecting it to feel. And if you can get familiar with that, as a result of some preparation that allows some of the rational thought to come back in. She refers to it as, as reframing. So there are studies that show us when kids go to take an exam, they will, uh, if they can reframe and go, instead of I'm nervous about this, it's I'm excited to finally apply all of that study time. Mm -hmm. If you can go into public speaking, for example, which is like the number one fear after death, yeah. I think. If you can go, I'm excited about sharing this information that I have with people, about sharing my gift with somebody. If you can take that nerve and reframe it into excitement or, you know, something a little bit more celebratory, then all of a sudden your, your nerves won't necessarily go away. Like your heart may not start to slow down at all, but that mental optimism that you have actually achieves much greater results. And I know from similar negotiation research that people who go in more aspirational and more optimistic get much better results. So it's about pressing pause to go, how can I reframe this into something more positive to reminding myself that I know what I'm doing to a positive mantra of some kind, if that's something that you do to a, a meditative breath, if that's something that feels comfortable to you. But ultimately it's reframing it into, I can do this. I prepared for this. I deserve this. I'm capable of this. I'm excited to finally get the outcome of this. Any one of those kind of mm -hmm. self-talk moments will end up getting you much better results. That's a good thing. I might take that into my exams. <laughs> do it. Absolutely do it. I know for some people, what they would do is they would lower the expectations, go into an exam or even go into negotiation just in case things don't go the way they wanted them to go so they don't get disappointed or discouraged. Uh, but I think using both strategy for myself, I definitely agree that going with the mindset, this is exciting, I'm going to get what I want mentality or mindset will definitely get you better results than the opposite. Yeah. I mean, I understand where the managing your expectations comes from. Like, I don't want to disappoint myself. Therefore yeah. it's a defense mechanism. So I won't, I'll manage my reaction later. I would rather you build to a greater outcome than manage the reaction later. Okay, yeah. And it doesn't have to be, I'm going to get the world's greatest results. It's, I am capable of this. I am excited mm -hmm. about this. So you don't have to set yourself up for failure either. But when I am coaching people through the actual negotiation process, when they're coming up with their proposals, even I don't tell them go in there being realistic or, you know, 
going in there, go in there and be suboptimal. I say, go in there and be aspirational, shoot for the moon and you'll get a lot closer mm -hmm. to it than if you shoot for the floor. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the mentality I want people to take in. Yeah, that's definitely a great advice. And uh, when it comes to salaries, how negotiable are salaries? Negotiation is a really gray area. There's no black and white answer. I sat in on, on somebody else's lecture recently where they tried to give numbers like 10% or 15%. Yes. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can really do that. I think it, it truly depends on context and mm -hmm your gut instincts. So I tell people, you want to go as far as you can credibly. If you are asking for, let's say a hundred thousand dollar salary, I'll use around numbers for ease. You going in and asking for 200 to finish at 100 just doesn't sound credible. That sounds ridiculous, yeah. but asking for 117 might not sound so crazy. But in some other circumstances, 117 might sound crazy because it's so above and beyond what everybody else in the market is getting. So maybe 107 is more appropriate. So I can't give you an exact number, but I will say that where the number comes from is context. So do your homework, understand what are the market values out there. You can use things like Glassdoor and Payscale where people self-report what their salaries are, but you got to take that with a grain of salt. Like, does that match my job description? Is that in my mar in my neighborhood, in my market, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. There's lots of other resources out there though. For you who are students, there's resources in your career centers as well. I mean, Google's got a million different resources. So just do your homework and find out based on this job title, based on this experience level, what is the range of P of the amount of money that people are making for this? And then I'll tell people, usually that range will come out with an average. Then I want you to ask yourself, are you average? You're probably not. <laughs> if you are getting this opportunity, if yeah. you are getting a job offer, you are probably not an average person. So add that little not so average tax to the top of that range yeah. and then decide, you know, what sounds credible. What am I seeing out there? If you are shooting a few thousand dollars more than the average, maybe you're even suboptimal. Maybe you need to go $10,000 more. Maybe that range changes when you're shooting for a $50,000 job. That $20,000 gap I mentioned at the 100,000 level might sound really stupid at the $50,000 level. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's really just about context and a, a using your gut instincts, but more than anything, using your research. There's so much around you and there's so many people around you, but just make sure that you add the not so average tax on top of that. You also mentioned in our previous session with the team, the feel good folder. And I think that's when it comes in handy when you're having these tough conversations. I'm, I'm glad that you remembered the feel good folder <laughs> because <laughs> that, is, that is your proof that is you, that you are not average. And the concept behind it is simply, you know, I speak to so many people who are in, in the middle of their careers and the peak of their careers, and they have these evaluations at the year end. And it's people that I've worked closely with in consulting gigs. I've sat around the boardroom table with them a lot and they go, Oh, I've got this year end evaluation and I've got to to figure out what did I do this year? I don't know. I, I can't think of anything I did this year. I'm like, I watched you. I can think of a ton of things that you did this year. <laughs> and so rather than getting stuck in that position, it's going, how do I, every single time I get a compliment, every single time I get an accolade, every single time I complete a project, I'm going to, I'm going to mm -hmm. put that note in my feel good folder. I have one for myself, even though I'm self-employed, I don't have a boss to impress, <laughs> Yeah, but when I get a compliment from a student, from somebody in an audience, from feedback from a client and so on, I have a folder sitting in my outbox, in my inbox that um, I will file those things into. And then when my web person is going, do you have any testimonials that we can put on your website? I'm like, yeah, 
I've got a whole bunch of them. There you go. Or when my agent is going, we need something to put on the back of your book. I'm like, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of quotes from people. But when you're having a really down moment and you're doubting yourself, go into that feel good folder. And that's a great way to boost your self-esteem and your ego a little bit. That's a great way to find those mantras that are going to help you to reframe to go. Yeah, I am good at this. That's what so-and-so said to me. And it just makes you appear that much more credible. You've now got a file of other people's words about you. And, uh, and your accomplishments and all the great things that you've done that you can now use to add up that not so average tax that I keep telling you to put on all of those proposals that you're putting out there. It also makes you more credible and less arrogant when you can speak to somebody and go, well, I got this feedback from my professor or my colleagues at such and such a club. Um, you know, were, had taught, told me that they were appreciative of such and such a skill that I bring to the table. When you're looking for those transferable skills from one job to the next, you know, I talk to so many students who they go, I don't have job experience though. But I'm like, you have life experience. You have been, you've been participating in clubs. You've been organizing events. You've been working on special projects. You've been doing all of these things. Do those not account for anything? You've been doing something. How do the skills that you've been working on there transfer into the job that you're applying for? So it'd be nice to have a folder full of collected of all of those things so that you can be so much more articulate about it when they do ask you those questions in those interviews. After the session, I added one on my inbox as well. So now I'm excited to check it out like at the end of the year so I can <laughs> see how many emails I put in it. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So for the last question, before we move to the rapid three, two, one, is there any advice or anything that you would like to leave our listeners, listeners with? Oh man, there's so many things I would say. I'm going to go back to what I've said before. I'm going to say, pause to reflect on your value. What are you bringing to the table? What makes you unique? Why do they want to deal with you? Why are they giving you this opportunity? Why is the door even open for you to make this proposal. People need you. Otherwise they wouldn't be having that conversation with you. So if you can take inventory of what it is that you are bringing to the table, you're going to go in there with that mindset to really knock it out of the park. Moving on to the rapid three, two, one, we will have three questions. So the first question will have a three word answer. The second question will have a two word answer. And the last question will have a one word answer. So. Okay, so it gets harder as we go. All right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for the first question, what are the three values that got you where you are today? Oof. Um, I would say perseverance. Okay. Integrity. Okay. And I don't know how to put this into one word, so I'm going to say serving because it's about serving others. Service. Okay. That's it. Service. Yes, that's one word. <laughs> And uh, for the second question, what are two things that make you feel motivated or inspired? So when things are not going well, or you're having a bad day, what are the things that keep you going? So two things that keeps you kind of grounded. Mentors. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's one word. Yeah, um, that's one word. <laughs> and rewards. Okay. Like, and I mean, like intrinsic rewards. I get a lot out of it. Okay. Okay. And for the last question, what is the one skill that you think is, is important in all aspects of life? So if you have to pick one skill, what would it be? I don't know if you consider this a skill, but I would call it confidence. That counts. That's 100%. a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. And I say confidence because confidence got, has got to be backed up with something. Whereas arrogance yeah. is like, you can be arrogant and not have anything to back it up. But yeah, confidence, true. it comes from somewhere. 
Yeah, I never thought about it, but now that I'm thinking about it, it definitely makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us here today. We loved having you. We loved your advices. It was my pleasure, ladies. I hope it was useful. Absolutely. It absolutely was. Yeah.